0: so glad you've joined us today for our Thursday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel, so let's listen in now to Pastor Dave. Will
1: and so, he goes on in verse 21, he says, Do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things, which cannot profit or deliver, for they are... Nothing. Hmm. Before that says, don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things, which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. I want you to catch this. I want you to be able to see in verse 20 and 21, that if you are not serving the Lord and walking with the Lord in a very close relationship then there's something else that you are doing that is empty and is going to profit you nothing. It's going to leave you empty. It cannot profit. It cannot deliver. Whatever you're a part of, it's going to leave you wanting. And and what makes that happen is the fact of what it says in verse 20, that you're not serving the Lord with all your heart. Which tells me if you're not serving the Lord, your, your life is going to be empty. It's going to be vain. But if you're serving the Lord, then that's what's going to bring that purpose and meaning to your life. Don't turn aside to the right and left. That doesn't mean that you don't take a job and provide for your family. That's part of serving the Lord. You're supposed to provide for your family. But not so much to the hurt where you're not actively in service somewhere serving the Lord. It shouldn't be that way. And if it is, you're going to find your Christian life is going to be empty. Isn't that a, quite a conundrum? Can a Christian life be empty? Yes, it can. Because there are carnal Christians, and there are Christians that have made that step of faith in what God has done for them through their Son, Jesus Christ, and yet they remain there, and they don't step out in maturity to grow, to be that person that God wants them to be. And because of that, you're going to lead a very empty life. And I have found in my own life personally, and I think that this is a sweeping um, uh, characteristic in all that serve the Lord, that I believe that we would all say this, that as I served the Lord and I stepped out in faith, and the more I stepped on in the faith, the more that I served the Lord, the more ma- I mature I became in the Lord. And the greater I understood the Lord. And that's just the only way it can happen. But when you sit on the sidelines, you can't grow. you just can't. You can grow in the way of knowledge, but, but you're never going to grow in the way of maturity. Because remember, love puff, I'm sorry, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And that knowledge is never going to be able to be used in order to advance the kingdom of God and bless anybody else. It has to be through the love of Christ that compels you. Love is what edifies, and love is what motivates you into service, your love for your Savior, your love for your Creator. In verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. All through Scripture, we're told that God is not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. Joshua 1, nine. have I not commanded you, be strong and good courage, do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In Hebrews 13.5, uh, for he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I mean, that's the promise of God, and that promise is awesome. Absolutely awesome. In verse 23, it says, moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart, for I consider what great things he has done for you. That is, that is the, um, the line that differentiates those who serve and those who don't. Those who don't serve really do not dwell enough on the great things that God has done for you. Because if you really dwelt on the great things that God has done for you, then that is what's going to motivate you that the love of Christ is what compels me. Because I know of all the great things God has done for me, this is why I want to serve him. And if you don't want to serve him, it's because you're not dwelling enough on those great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. I love this. In what Samuel said before, he says, look, more as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Remember when Samuel first went to the Lord, when they were asking for a king, he was feeling he was being rejected. He's been hurt by the people. He's been hurt by the people. God's the one that told him, hey, look, don't take this personally. This is a reflection of me, not of you. But Samuel's still hurt through the process. And yet, even though Samuel is still hurt, and he's still angry at the direction that the people are going, he says, I'm still not going to sin by not praying for you. I'm still going to pray for you. Even though what you did is wrong, even though I don't think your attitudes today probably are where it's supposed to do, I'm still going to pray for you, and I'm still going to teach you the way. I'm still going to do what God has called me to do, and that is to pray for you and to teach you. Matthew 5, 44, it says, But I say to you, Jesus speaking here, Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? The next verse says it. So that you may be the sons of your father. Because that's what true sons of the father does. Children of God pray for others, even though... They've been hurt by them, used by them. They will continue to intercede faithfully for them because that's what Jesus was doing. And that's a big question, isn't it? Do you have people in your life that have hurt you, that have used you, that have done all sorts of horrible things? Can you still pray for them? No. That is a condition of your heart. Because we should, and Samuel does, and Jesus tells us to, and I would say the ones that have hurt you the most are the ones you should be praying for the most. Isn't that a great uh, way to figure out, God, who should I pray for? Well, let's look at the first list first. Who has hurt you? Who don't you like? Who is your enemy? Why don't you fill out that list first? You will find that that is your prayer list. Same list. (laughs) Here's my blacklist. Here's all the people that have wronged me. Write them down. Because you should scratch out the top where it says enemies, and you put prayer list. It's the way it should be. It's the way it should be. Samuel 13, verse 1 says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Micmash, and in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now... If Saul at this time already has a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan is old enough to lead a band of men in the army, we have to be thinking that Jonathan's at least probably, in a very conservative guesstimate, to be leading men 25 years of age, maybe more like 30. So Saul, when he had Jonathan, is what? If he's 18 to 20 when he gets married... Let's just say he had Jonathan when he was 20. Jonathan's at least 20 or 25. That means Saul, when he became king, was probably between 40, 45, maybe even closer to 50 years of age. So Saul was not some young kid that God anointed to be king over Israel. He was no novice or whatever. He was a man that already had adult children. So this is the first regular army we see for Israel. Previously, it was a a militia um, that in times of trouble, everybody from the tribe would send their men, they'd get together and they'd go out to battle. We saw that in chapter 11 when 300,000 men assembled to fight the Ammonites with Saul. But now, a couple years later, we have a professional army. An army of the way that you do things man's way. So in the last year or two, he's been able to muster about 3,000 men, maybe trying to train them at that time. But interesting to me, before this training was taking place, before you were saying who's good enough to be in the army, who isn't, God was able to muster 300,000 soldiers when he needed to. Now we're going to have this issue with the Philistines, and you got 3,000 soldiers, tops, to go out and fight. This is what it is to fight in the flesh, to be able to fight the way you want to fight. A garrison is usually a city, a town, or a fort. Um, it's a term for a body of troops. It's stationed in a particular location. A garrison is there to really overlook the uh, the trading routes and, and, and the land as well as the different roads, and you'd position these different fortresses along the way to protect the roads and your own interests and things like that. Um, how many is in a particular location, how many of the Philistines are in a garrison. We don't really know. It's anywhere from between 20 and 100 is the best guesstimate about that. Um, and so uh, so Jonathan goes up. He has 1,000, and he's able to take over this garrison. Okay. And verse 4, look what it says. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Well, how is that? If Jonathan's the one that attacked the garrison, why are people saying that Saul is the one that attacked the garrison? And that Israel has become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. This, I think, you begin to see a little bit of the heart of Saul. It's changed a little bit from his humility, waiting on the Lord and letting God do what he needs to do through him. It seems like that victory over the Amorites um, has kind of gone to his head a little bit. And now that Jonathan has attacked the Philistines, he doesn't quite want him to get the credit. And somehow the word got out that Saul's the one who did it, when yet it was Jonathan who did it. And if Saul hears about that, if he's not the one that started that, and if he hears about it being the king, he should know everything that's going on. And Israel's saying that you're the one that attacked it, you should say, no, I want the word to go out. It was the bravery of my son that did that and give credit where credit is due, but we don't see him do that. We don't see them do that. And so instead, it's kind of a bad sign uh, of the heart and character of Saul, kind of a sense of insecurity that he now has, that he doesn't allow for those who are associated with him, even his own son, to receive any credit that they might do. So in verse 5, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as a sand which is on the seashore in a multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. It was just three years earlier that God rallied the troops and annihilated Nahash the Amorite. It wasn't many years before that that we were able to see um, about 20 years before that, God muster up an army to take care of the Philistines once before. It's kind of in recent history of what God has done. But again, they're not walking by faith, even from the beginning, they're still walking by sight. And they see the Philistines and they see 30,000 chariots, they see 6,000 horsemen, they They see all this and they go, oh my goodness. And the people as a sandwich is on the seashore in a multitude. They see a lot, a big army, huge. So much so that the people in the area begin to hide in caves and thickets and rocks and holes in pits. That's pretty scary when you think about it. But we could all pretty much identify with this. Have you ever been a a kid and you're really scared? And you hit under your bed? Yeah. I'm not going to ask how many as adults you've done that. Yeah, and I'm sure you have. But we can identify being so scared as a child, remembering when, and you know, there's monsters in the basement. You know there are. You know. And they're and they're in the closets, they're in these places, and you're getting freaked out, and it was one of the first times that your parents lied for you to be alone. I'm 13. I could take care of this. And then that. Little noise in the house, what's that? You know, and all of a sudden you're five again, you know, and you think we've been that scared for. You. And here, these people are so afraid, they go into holes in the earth, pits, hide in rocks, crevices, and things like that. That's really scared that you will go and bury yourself. They're scared. And so, It says, and some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembling. Wow, that doesn't give you a whole lot of assurance when you look back at the group that are following you, and they're scared to death, and they're trembling. Wow. Whatever this force was, it was mighty. And then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. So somehow along the line, Samuel has spoken to him says, go to Gilgal and remain there and wait for me. Now, I don't know about you, that would be enough comfort, I would think. Samuel's still the guy that's in direct line with God. He's still a mouthpiece for God. There's nothing Samuel has not said that has not come to pass. And Samuel has said, I am going to be the king. Samuel said, so long as we follow the Lord, God is going to bless. So long as the people obey the Lord and I obey the Lord, God is going to be pleased and we're going to be just fine. And Samuel just told me, go to Gilgal and wait for me. Okay, and that's what I'm going to do. God has a plan, much like he did with Nahash, much like he did many other times before with the Philistines. He has a plan and he is speaking. And this is what he said, wait. At Gilgal. Okay. He waits. According to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel does not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. So that means. His army that he has. That he has chosen. Because he can tell. Who's going to be faithful in battle. Who isn't. Is scattering. Before him. So Saul says. Bring a burnt offering. A peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. In direct rebellion against God's word because only the priests can do that, which Samuel is one. And so he's showing he's being impatient here. But he wants to be able to show the people that we have God on our side. It's a false bravado. Verse 10, now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel comes. Now how long does it take to prepare a burnt offering? Okay, go get the oxen, go get the... the the lamb, go get whatever you need to get in the way of an animal sacrifice. Let's go ahead and slit its throat. Let's let the blood drain. Um, Let's go ahead and offer it on the altar and bow before the Lord. I'm thinking three hours, maybe four at the most. He only had, he waited there seven days. You couldn't wait a few more hours? Just a few more hours? And isn't it just like God, that after you're just done with your sin, you see him face to face? And as they were done with the sacrifice, here comes, here comes Samuel. Oh, no. And Saul goes out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered before me, and that you did not come when the day is appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, so you have a list of reasons why you're going to disobey God. Hey man, people were leaving, those people, you know the people. You know, same ones said they wanted a king, you know. And then when you didn't come up, Mr. Faithful, Mr. Prophet from God, when you didn't come, and then when I saw the Philistine, have you seen the Philistines? He's making excuses. There's three of them right off the bat. That's how he greets them. What have you done? What have I done? Somebody had to take control here. Man, that's the problem. Not waiting on God. I'll take control. Got to do something. You know what? You really don't. When God says to wait, then then you wait. That's the something you do. You wait. But man, when he says wait, and you try and get ahead of him, and you try and make things happen big disasters are gonna come your way because God wants you nowhere near what he is cooking up. Have you ever thought about that? You know? My mom, all the time when she would cook, I would go in there and I'd try and taste a little something before it was ready or something like that. She would just love, and, and it probably happened to you as well, she would love to take the little spoon and man, hit me on the hand. She does that to this day. You know? Get, get, get it. And she said, get away from there. I'm cooking this. And it's like, Saul, don't you get it? God's cooking up something here. It's going to be awesome. But if you don't wait for that and you want to go ahead and microwave a burrito, fine, go ahead and do that. You know, but it's not nearly as good as what mom's cooking up. You want to do this? Fine, but it's not nearly as good as what God is cooking up here. This is awesome he says, what have you done? And so Saul lays out these three excuses here. If he just waited a few more hours, everything would have been all right. But his impatience is going to cost him dearly. People who make excuses are always so quick to blame others. We saw that at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. You know, the very first passing of the buck. It's the woman you gave me. And then she goes, oh, it's a serpent. And it just continues on. We always have an excuse. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal. I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. In the old King James, it actually says, I forced myself, therefore. I felt compelled. I forced myself and I offered a burnt offering. Really? You had to force yourself? Why didn't you force yourself not to to do it? I forced myself to do it. Why didn't you force yourself not to do it? You had a choice. And you were supposed to wait on the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And this is a great question. Really? How would he have done that? Since the promise actually was through the line of Judah. And Saul was from the line of Benjamin. Benjamin. How would he have done that? But he says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Man, Samuel, nonsense. Your crown is now going to go to another. And we're going to find out later on this is going to be David. Yet Saul could have established a lasting dynasty somehow. And yet now none of his sons would succeed him and rule over Israel. But if Saul had not sinned, how would have his dynasty had continued? Since the scepter had to come from the tribe of Judah, according to Genesis 49. And this has been a great debate. I don't think everybody has it correct yet. But one of the thoughts is, is that, we see this friendship that Jonathan and David have to the point where Jonathan says, I will serve in your courtroom. He recognized the fact that David is the one that's supposed to be king. Which means that Saul's line could have had a dynasty along with David had he been obedient. Had he been obedient. That his household could have served alongside David's household forever because of his disobedience it's no longer going to be eternal with David not at all and he says the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart that's David then Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah Benjamin and Saul numbered the people present with him about 600 men now is there and so we're going to get into the rest of this next time Um, and uh, which will be Lord willing next
0: week Well, that concludes this Thursday edition of Abiding in the Word with Pastor Dave Love. Listen in tomorrow as we continue our study in 1 Samuel. If you live in the area of Castle Rock and are looking for a church to call home, be sure to come by and visit with us. We meet Saturdays at 5 p.m., and our Sunday service times are at 9 and 11 a.m. A combined junior and senior high class meets at 5 p.m. on Saturday evenings, On Sunday mornings, high school meets during the 9 a.m. service and the junior high meets at the 11 a.m. service. Our Young Adults Ministry, Arise, meets every Friday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Castle Rock. Childcare is offered for all of our weekend services. Calvary Castle Rock is located right off of I-25 and East Wolfensburger Road, directly behind Jack in the Box and the Shell gas station. For more information about us or this radio ministry, please visit our website at calvarycr.com or download our free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can also call the church office at 303-663-2514. We are so blessed you've joined us today. Until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God.